You guys excited to get in God's Word today? <laughs> hey, I want you to know we're starting a new series today. We're jumping in the book of 1 Peter in our hallways. If you haven't yet, we want to encourage you to go ahead and grab your first and second and, and the letter of Jude uh, prayer journal. It's got the ESV scriptures in it, which is what we use when we preach. And it's got some space for you to write notes, and this is our gift to you. So if you haven't got one yet, make sure you do and bring it with you every week because we are going to be diving into God's Word because we are committed to doctrine at New Heights Church. Somebody say amen. amen. I'll tell you, today I want to I wanna let you know, I want to get a little personal with you. First Peter has been very instrumental in my own spiritual journey. In fact, I've told you many times I've grown up in the church. My father was a pastor uh, slash missionary. My grandpa was a pastor slash missionary. My great-grandpa was a pastor slash missionary. And my great-great-grandpa was a pastor slash missionary. So I grew up in a home where I knew Jesus from a very early age, and I gave my life to him, and I never turned away from him. And that's a testimony. Thank you, Mom and Dad, for raising me in a home and all the people that poured into me. Uh, that's my story. But when I was 13, you know, actually, I, I'm telling you about the generations of ministry. We actually go further back because there's this rumor on my mom's side of the family that we were related to a minister uh, out of Missouri by the name of Jesse James. And supposedly, my grandma has all the paperwork to prove it, that he is, he is one of our relatives. Well, he was a, a Sunday school teacher, too, slash preacher. I think he's known for doing some other stuff, too. But anyway, so uh, our heritage goes way back, all the way back to good old Jesse James. He was preaching on Sunday and then doing other things that made him famous for not such good reasons. Anyway, First Peter is very special to me. This book of the Bible is extremely, extremely important to me. When I was 13 years old, my father was diagnosed with a brain tumor, um, and he battled that brain tumor for nine straight solid years. And I had grown up in a home where I had learned about suffering. I mean, my grandfather was a, uh, a prisoner of war during World War II and was actually put in a concentration camp uh, while he served in China, and he, he was in that concentration camp for over a year suffered uh, horrible, horrible things uh, at the hands of his captors. And, you know, I, I grew up hearing the stories of how he suffered through that, but how good and faithful God was. And, and my world shouldn't have been turned upside down, but when my dad got sick, my world was completely turned upside down. And as a 13-year-old, I wrestled and grappled with my faith. For nine years, I kept hoping my dad would get better. And I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed. And for a 13-year-old to fast one or two days, that's a pretty big deal. I remember still to this day, my brother and I had committed to fasting until my dad was healed. And we were on our second day. He was two years older, so I was 13, he's 15. Dad was in the hospital room, and I remember Jordan just, my older brother, puked all over the floor. And my dad said, look, why don't you go eat something? You're going to help me out more if you stop puking in my room. But we, were, we, we just had so much hope that my dad would get better, and he never did. He actually died after battling that tumor for nine years. My dad was a Pentecostal minister who uh, throughout his lifetime was a part of different healings. He laid his hands on people, and as a, as a child growing up in the ministry, I've actually seen miracles. I've seen deaf people. I've seen their ears open, and they're, they're able to hear. I've seen a blind man receive sight. I've seen miracles, 
And I didn't see it in my own father's life. And I struggled with my faith. And there was a youth pastor that had a profound impact uh, on me as a young person. And he encouraged me, Justin, I want you to look at 1 Peter. And I want you to go through the book of 1 Peter with me. And I discovered in the book of 1 Peter, I discovered this thing called hope. Hope is good. Hope is good when it's placed in the right thing. You see, I struggled for so many years... I had hope, but I had hope in my circumstances, and I had hope that my, or my circumstances and my situation would get better. And it never did. And I discovered through that journey that I can have hope in Jesus, that my hope always needs to be in Jesus. Not necessarily my circumstance, not necessarily the situation I face, but my hope needs to be in Jesus Christ, the resurrected King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen? So I'm excited. Now, the book of 1 Peter is broken up really into three different sections, chapter 1 uh, all the way through uh, chapter 2, verse 12. Peter's going to talk about our living hope. And then in chapter 2, verse 13, all the way through chapter 4, verse 11, he talks about how you and I are kind of odd as Christians. We're a little different. We don't necessarily fit into the world. We'll get into it today a little bit. But then the third thing he talks about is our fiery trials, the things that we go through in life. And that's in chapter 4, verse 12, all the way through chapter 5, verse 14. And so these key themes keep popping up, the key theme of hope, suffering, and really this spiritual awareness. It's an incredible book. In fact, 1 Peter's been called the epistle of hope. All throughout this epistle, you're going to see the same word repeated in different ways, at least in the English language. But in the Greek, it's the same word, and that word is hope. There's an old Roman saying that says, while there's life, there's hope. While there's life, there's hope. Now, that has an element of truth, but no, not really a guarantee of certainty. Because I have hope for a lot of things in my life. <laughs> a lot of things. I once, I once had hoped that I would be over six feet tall. That was a big hope of mine. I prayed every day. That and to be hairy. Why I prayed that, I don't know. <laughs> but I had hopes that I would be over six feet tall, that I would be the next world wrestling entertainment champion. Then it was World Wrestling Federation. But I had hoped that I'd be the next macho man, Randy Savage. But after like the sixth grade, I stopped growing. <laughs> I've hoped for a lot of things. I had hoped that the Buffalo Bills would win the Super Bowl in 1991. Then I had hope again that they would win in 1992. Then I had hope again that they would win in 1993. And I was stupid enough to have hope again that they would win in 1994. I have hoped for a lot of things in life that have never happened. I'm still hoping the Buffalo Bills can win a Super Bowl. It's not a living hope, though. I want to tell you that right now. <laughs> While the Roman saying is nice, it's not, it's not the fact of life that determines hope, but the faith of life that determines hope. So Peter's about to tell us that we as believers have this living hope. And it's living because it's in God. The living hope is the major theme of Peter's letter. He's telling all believers, be hopeful. In a book written by Viktor Frankl, he tells this story, his story, about being trapped in the horrors of Auschwitz and the Dachau death camps. And the book literally describes how he was transported to these camps like an unwanted animal. 
He was given two minutes to strip naked or be whipped. Every hair was shaved from his body, and he was condemned to, li to a living death. Every single person in his family, his father, his mother, his brother, and his wife, all died in the death camps. His existence consisted of coldness, fear, starvation, pain, lice, and vermin, dehumanization, exhaustion, and terror. And he wrote that he was able to survive because he never lost hope. Okay, he said that the prisoners who would lose their faith and their hope in the future, they were doomed because when a prisoner lost hope, they would decline. They'd become subject to mental and physical decay. They would die from the inside out, and he said it would happen really quick. As soon as they lost hope, death was around the corner. He said one morning they would refuse to get up. They wouldn't get dressed. They wouldn't wash. They wouldn't go outside. And it didn't matter how much their fellow prisoners tried to persuade them. It didn't matter how many threats they got from the guards. They would simply lose all hope, and they would give up. He describes how these prisoners would, would lie in their own excrement till they died. Later, American soldiers would coin this behavior as, as give up-itis. It was when a prisoner just lost all hope. And when that happened, they lost their spiritual hold. Do you know what it is to lose hope? Do you know what it is to come to an experience or a place in your life and it seems that you have absolutely no hope? There is nothing ahead. There is no future for you. Have you ever been in a situation or a place in your life that resembles that? Peter, a guy who, the guy who wrote this letter, he knew what it was like to lose hope. In fact, he got so hopeless that he even denied that he ever even knew Jesus Christ. After his denial, Jesus was crucified on a cross, buried in a tomb, and Peter lost all hope. In fact, his words could well have been the words spoken by the two disciples on the road to uh, Emmaus when they were discussing the death of Jesus. Do you remember what they said? They said, we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one. That's the way Peter felt. He'd lost his hope. Peter writes this book to people who are in the midst of suffering. They don't understand why they're going through it and, or, or what they should even do about it. Now, I want to stop for a minute and tell you something. There are people out there who say that Christians are not supposed to go through pain and suffering. I've heard that growing up. Sometimes I've, I've heard it in our Pentecostal circles. We are not meant to experience pain and suffering or grief or any kind of trials. The problem with that is I don't know what Bible they're reading. They haven't read 1 Peter. I think that's why I love the Bible, because it doesn't avoid the hard questions. Do you realize today we're committed to this Bible? Do you realize that our church is committed to preaching verse by verse, and we do it for a reason? We believe that this is God's truth, that it has the power to transform hearts and minds. This isn't just a fairy tale we open up and read to our kids before they go to bed. This is God's word. And when you apply this to your life, your life can be changed. I love that about the Bible. Peter, when he wrote this letter, he, he was very aware of these difficult questions. He was aware that people were struggling with some of the realities of life, and it was causing them to, to struggle in their faith, in what they, what they would perceive as a good God who would never let anybody suffer. 
Peter dealt with that. It's not something new to the church today. Man, when Peter wrote this, people thought the same way that many of us think today, that good people get rewarded and bad people get punished. And so when innocent people seem to suffer, when you think about children who die of starvation, and did you know that happens every day? My wife and I have served overseas, and we have experienced and witnessed small children dying of starvation. That it just seems unjust to me. When the wicked go unpunished and the good go unrewarded, it just kind of messes up our theology and we start to struggle with this idea, how can God be a good God? And Peter in this letter, he's not only aware of this struggle, he himself struggles with it. He himself had those struggles. At one point in the letter, he even talks about the fiery trials that they were going through. I want you to stop and think about this for a minute because when he said that, that might have been literal. The fiery trials. You know, some, some Roman emperors were known to dip political prisoners in oil and impale them on poles and light them on fire. Those were their tiki torches for their barbecues. And we know this. We know this for a fact that this happened to many Christians during the time of Peter. Genocide was a part of the Roman system. Entire families, men, women, and children would get slaughtered on the whim of a Roman emperor. So Peter, yeah, he, he's living the struggle. He gets it. He understands what it means to struggle. He's struggled with those questions. And he comes to this place where he writes this letter to a group of people that are suffering, and he says, you can have hope. You can have hope. Now, I'm going to be real honest with you before we dive into this passage that some people just won't be happy with the answer the Bible gives. They just will refuse to accept it. And to those people, all I can say is, I, I'm sorry, life is going to be tough. Life is going to be tough. But if you can accept God's word, even when you don't understand all things, I'm telling you, you're going to experience a peace that only God can give. So we're going to look at a few discoveries here Peter has when it comes to hope. And, and here's the first discovery. We see this in the first four verses. We'll look at just the first verse. But the first discovery is that Christians are born for glory. Christians are born for glory. Look at verse 1 with me. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the uh, dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, stop for a minute and let's talk about Peter, the guy who writes this. Some have described Paul as the apostle of faith, John as the apostle of love, and Peter is known as the apostle of hope. Now, Peter, it's funny if you compare Peter's letters to Paul's letters, Paul will always start out and he'll declare his apostleship like he's defending it. And, and Peter doesn't necessarily do that. He just comes out and says, I'm an apostle. He doesn't have to, he doesn't have to defend it. He doesn't have to explain it. That's because Peter had a lot of authority in the early church and people knew who Peter was. And so he just comes out and he writes this letter. And for, for the people who read this letter from the apostle Peter, it would have been a pretty big deal. Man, to get this letter from Peter. And Peter writes some amazing things that help us today. And I can't think, honestly, I can't think of a better way to start this new season as New Heights Church than to go through the book of 1 Peter. Now, I've always applied verse Peter to my life when I'm going through struggles. I've never thought about First Peter when it comes to not feeling welcome in, in my country or by others. And I gotta be honest, 
As I prepared this, this sermon or this sermon series for this church, I thought to myself, it's the first time that I'm reading it and I can relate to the exiles. I can relate to those people that don't feel comfortable in their cities or their towns or their countries. I can. Now, we have, we have freedom of religion now. I can't promise you it's going to last forever in, in America. We're mocked. We're laughed at. We're picked on politically. We seem to be the target of a whole lot of different political groups. And I'm telling you, it just seems like there's this agenda out there to snub us out. I still have hope. Go ahead. Do everything you want to try to shut down the church. Go for it. I still have hope. You can't touch my hope. That's why I love this letter. I don't know what's going to happen in America, but I know what's going to happen in the end. I know how the story ends. I serve the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and I serve the one who controls all things. So this is a great book as we, as we dive into our new season. But think about Peter. He doesn't need an introduction. One of the most famous apostles in the Bible, the most prominent in the Gospels besides Jesus himself, and he's mentioned more than any other name in the New Testament, more than Paul, more than John. He was the disciple whose name always appears first on the list of apostles. That's because he seems to be the leader of the group. He goes by three different names in the Bible. His name was originally Simon. That was his Hebrew name, which means listen or to listen. Now, I find that a little humorous because that's what Peter struggled to do. <laughs> he struggled to listen. And then Jesus changed his name to Peter, which means rock. So we're kind of going through our Rocky series here. Peter the Rock. And then, of course, he goes by the name we read Cephas, which was the Aramaic of the Greek version of Peter. So you're going to see him called Simon Peter. You're going to hear the reference to Cephas. They're all the same individual, okay? I love Peter because there's something I can identify with. Something about him I can identify with. He was just a normal guy. He had a big mouth. He said stupid things. Sometimes I struggle relating to Paul, if I'm going to be honest, because Paul just, he seemed like he was way up there. Paul, incredible guy. Just this amazing spiritual giant. But Peter, I don't know. He just, he seems more relatable, I guess. Paul was like this Ivy League kind of guy. He's, he would say, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I graduated from the highest school in the land. And Peter, he knew the difference between a trout and a salmon. <laughs> he just, he was, he was just seems more like a guy that I could relate to. Paul seems like the kind of guy that would drink tea while listening to lectures on his iPad. Peter seems like the kind of guy that would watch WrestleMania with me. Come on. He's the guy who walked on the water, and he's also the guy who sank in the water. He's the guy who confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then a moment later, he was rebuked by Jesus. He was literally called Satan by Jesus at one point. Just so you know, that's not a good thing. <laughs> he protested he would never deny Christ, and a few moments later denied Christ while he cussed out a little girl. Thank God they didn't have Facebook back then because Peter would have been all over it. He's the same Peter who was restored from his denial of Jesus along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. This is the Peter that's writing this letter. And he says, he writes it to the elect exiles. That's a very important name. <laughs> elect exiles. Man, we're chosen and then we're called exiles. 
Elect means that they're God's chosen people. Exiles means that they're not in their home country. They're not in their home territory. Some translations even say aliens. They were, they were both names that had been given to the Jews at one point. The Jews were God's elect people, and for a while they, they'd been driven out of Israel to live in a foreign land. Elect exiles. God's blessed and favored people, but not in a place where God rules. There's an enemy power there that exists, and we're living in it. We have this dual identity with God, we're elect, and with the world, we're in exile. What does exile mean? It means kicked out, rejected. We don't fit in. We're unwelcome. We're not at home. We get frustrated. We don't feel right. And like I said, I'm starting to feel this more and more even in my own country. That's the name Peter gives to the church. You, we're exiles. We're God's chosen people, but we're living in a land under the domination of an enemy power. And guess what, New Heights Church? Listen, you don't belong here. You don't belong here. I played the violin when I was little. I know some of you have a hard time believing that. My dad took me to uh, some, some store and told me to pick out uh, something, some sports equipment, said you could pick out anything in the store, and in the back there was a violin. It wasn't even for sale. The guy was going to throw it away, and I, I happened to find it, and I told my dad I wanted to play the violin. My dad struggled with it. He was a wrestling coach. He loved sports. He didn't want to see his son. He, I don't think he cared if I played the violin as long as it didn't take over sports, and that's what happened. I wanted to be a violin player. And I remember we have a video and I probably should have showed it for you, but I would have had to convert it from VHS. <laughs> but we have a video where my dad's recording. He's doing the good dad thing, and he's cheering me on. You can hear him. He doesn't know how to cheer somebody on at a violin concert, too. He's, he's yelling my name. He's saying, go after it. At one point, he even says, keep playing that, those strings, buddy. You're doing great. Stroke those strings. You can hear my mom say, Jim, I think he gets it. You support him. <laughs> And then his, his camera was shaking because dad was laughing so hard because out of the entire group, I was just off the entire, entire concert. When everybody would stand up, I was sitting down, scratching my head, looking around. When everybody was playing the same stroke, I was always off. I would stand up when nobody else would. I would look around and get confused. My dad's shaking and laughing the whole time saying, you got him, Jesse, go get him. And you could hear my mom say, stop. They don't do that at a concert. This isn't a wrestling meet, Jim. But he was supporting me. But I'll tell you what, I looked out of place. <laughs> if you watch that video, you can't help but laugh because I was very out of place up on that stage. The truth is, I just am not a very good violinist. Peter's saying, you don't belong here. You're out of place. You're citizens of another country. Why? Because you have been turned into something different. This is a blessing, but there's burdens too. Both are simultaneously and continuously true in your life. God says you're an elect, and the world says you're in exile. My question to you is, does this world feel like home? Why? If it doesn't, why? I'll tell you why. Because it's not home. This is not our home. This world, it's broken, it needs to be fixed, it's evil, and it needs to change. It needs a Savior. And I want you to understand this. The more you walk with Jesus, the more this place doesn't feel like home. 
The more you grow in your relationship with Jesus, the more uncomfortable you're going to be living in this world. You are elect, but you are in exile. God loves you. The world doesn't accept you. God blesses you. The world burdens you. This is the dual identity, and this is the experience of every Christian. We just do not belong in this world. In verses 2 through 3, we're going to see that Peter's going to kind of describe this Christian birth, this new birth that we're were to experience. Verse 2. Verse 2 says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Guess what? The miracle, it all began with Jesus. We were chosen by God the Father, and God choosing us wasn't based on anything we had done. The basis of our election is God's foreknowledge. And when Peter uses that word, he doesn't just mean that God foresaw who would respond to his offer for salvation. You know what the word foreknowledge in the Greek is? It's the same word where we get the, our English word prognosis from. You know, when you go to a doctor and you say, what's the prognosis? That's the word he uses here for foreknowledge. The same word, in fact, is used in the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus' death wasn't some accident. It's like, well, Jesus kind of got himself into a tricky situation. He found himself in some trouble. He got himself arrested. They ended up putting him on the cross, and he died. I want you to understand that that was planned. It was pre-planned. Peter in Acts chapter 2 will say this. He says, him, that's Jesus, being delivered, listen to this, by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by your wicked hands, crucified and put to death. So God sent him, and then Peter's saying, you and your choice crucified him. Both are true. That's God's knowledge, and that's God's foreknowledge. Sometimes believers really struggle with this doctrine. But I need you to hear me. It's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. We can't just skip it. We can't ignore it. It's there. It might make us uncomfortable, but we have to look at it and study it and understand it and apply it to our lives. It is all throughout the Bible. The truth is that no matter how you feel about this, Peter encourages readers with the doctrine of divine election. He uses this to encourage his readers. It's easy to think that God's with us and blessing us when we're at the end of the rainbow and receiving all that gold. That's easy to look and say, God's blessing me. It's also easy to wonder if God has abandoned us when our world is falling apart. That's where I found myself as a 13-year-old boy. My entire life was changing. Everything that I knew was changing. We went from being pastors of a church to being homeless. We had to move around in different church parsonages. We, we had to uh, take on this new identity. I was always known as Jim Hansen's son, and that changed. That changed the moment my dad got sick and the moment my dad was dying. I was a pastor's kid. That was my identity. And it was all changing. And it was easy for me to wonder if God had abandoned me. But I need you to listen here. This is what Peter's saying. Regardless of how bad our circumstances might be, God is sovereign. He's the one who, who knows us intimately before the foundation of the world. 
And Peter's using this truth to encourage those who are facing severe persecution. Because God's chosen us, and some of you might get stuck on that word, and here's what I, this is what I'll tell you. Anytime somebody comes into my office and says, I'm really struggling with this word. It's not fair that I'm not chosen. I say, well, let's just change that. Do you want to put your faith in Jesus Christ right now? I'm not ready for that. Then you're not chosen. <laughs> Are you ready for that? You could be chosen today. You want to be one of the chosen? You got to put your faith in Jesus Christ. So when, you know, when I, when I say chosen, remember it's the one who's put their faith in Jesus Christ because God has chosen us, we belong to God, and there's nothing, and I repeat, nothing in this world that can separate us from the inheritance he has prepared for us. Nothing. Verses three through four, it's gonna talk about the Christians, he's gonna describe the Christian's hope. This is amazing, listen to this, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I've already read it once, I know. I want to do it again. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiable, and unfading kept in heaven for you. Don't you love it that Peter goes to mercy? This is where he takes us. People are going through suffering, and Peter wants to take them back to the mercy of Jesus. Now, this can be a hard pill to swallow, and sometimes as a pastor, I hate to do this. I love to listen to people who come, and I want you to know I'm a good listener, but there will be a time where I'm going to direct you back to God's mercy. You can come in, and you can tell me how difficult life's been, and I'm going to tell you, some people in our church are going through some really difficult times. Man, we've got some people in this building right now that are going through horrendous horrendous times, that have suffered greatly, that have done things that nobody ever wants to do. We have people who have lost children. We have people who have lost loved ones to disease and sickness. We have people who have lost jobs and are trying to figure out how they're going to pay rent the next month. We have people that have dealt with illness and sickness their entire life. We have people that have been through difficult times in this building. Peter, when talking to people who are going through it, he's directing them back to the mercy of God. A lot of times the assumption is this. We have pain is why all these bad things are happening, or why are all these bad things happening to good people? And the Bible takes a very different approach. It takes the opposite approach. It teaches us that the world is under a curse, all of it, the human race, even kids, even small children, all of us are under this curse. What about people who have never heard? They're under the curse. All people have a resistance and a rebellion to authority. We're born that way. We're born with this sinful nature. And Peter reminds them all that God's goodness is mercy. God's goodness is mercy. The world thinks, and I've dealt with so many people who feel this way, we are good so God owes us. We're good so God owes us. That's how I felt as a 13-year-old. God owes us. All my family has ever done is serve God, so God owes us. My dad has been a faithful pastor and missionary his whole life. God owes him right now. God needs to come through. God needs to heal him of his cancer, his brain tumor. God owes us. Why are we going through this? We shouldn't be going through this, but that's, that's what the world thinks sometimes. 
I had to go back to the Bible because here's what the Bible says. Here's the gospel. We are evil, but God has been merciful, so we owe him. It's amazing that Peter brings us back to mercy. In mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. And remember, hope is what you look forward to on the other side. That's what Peter does. Peter takes us back to the mercy of God because that, man, that'll change your perspective. It will, no matter what you're going through, you're just gonna be grateful that you have God's mercy. God's mercy is infinite. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you turn to and you trust in Jesus Christ, there is this great uh, source of mercy for you. And that's good news. (laughs) The second thing he talks about here in this verse is being born again. You are born physically, but you are still spiritually dead. And you need to be born again of the Spirit of God. That's what Peter says. Why a new birth? Why? Why is it called that? Because a new birth is the entrance to a new life. And when a person has new life, when a person has new life, there, there are certain steps that a person's going to take. And what Peter would say here is that the new birth is a step towards hope. The new birth is a step towards inheritance, and the new birth is a step towards power. What does all this mean? It means this, that God, the Holy Spirit, changes your nature at the deepest level of your being. And the way this plays out in your life is you have new desires. Man, you have new desires. You become a new creation. You become a new person. Have you ever been around somebody that has experienced the grace, mercy, and love of Jesus Christ and their life has completely, radically transformed and changed? I am so thankful for my first few years in ministry. I got to go up to New York and I got to do something that I never, never did growing up. It was a very different kind of ministry than the very traditional Assemblies of God church that I grew up in. My dad wore the suit, brushed his hair with, you know, the hairspray, and we, he looked the part back then. That's the AG church that I grew up in. Then I went to New York after Bible college and worked with Teen Challenge. And boy, was it crazy. <laughs> That's, what, that's all I can say. It was crazy, so many experiences. But you know what I saw? People who I didn't think could be changed experienced the love, the grace, and the mercy of Jesus, and I saw a different person. In fact, I remember my first six weeks there, I went to a dinner, a banquet, and they brought this guy. The pastor that I worked with was pretty neat in the sense that he would go find people on the streets and just bring them in the program. Sometimes they were so drugged up, they couldn't even say no. He'd just put them in the van, drive them in, let them detox, let them get off of whatever they're doing, and then, and then enter them into the program. So he brought one of these guys, and he brought him and just told him to sit at the table. Uh, I, I tried to have a conversation with this gentleman. He didn't know his name. He didn't know where he was from. He was so messed up with drugs. And I remember at 23 years old thinking, he can't change. He can't change. I mean, this, this guy's situation is hopeless. Three months later, I went to a Christmas banquet, and a gentleman came up and sat next to me. He said, you don't remember me? I said, no, have we met? He said, yeah, I sat next to you at a a banquet about three months ago. Completely changed. Completely, radically changed. He had experienced the love and the power of Jesus Christ. He had grown up in a religious home, but he never experienced Jesus He never experienced the resurrection power that could live inside of him. And when that happened, his life was changed. His desires changed. Everything about him was different. 
That's what happens when we come to know Jesus as our Savior. God changes you. And I'll tell you, the biggest miracle, the biggest miracle, and I know I'm talking to a Pentecostal church, so listen up. The biggest miracles that you're going to see is when you see something in somebody's heart that changes. That's the biggest miracle you're ever going to see is a change at the level of nature and desire. That's a miracle that only God can do. So I want to tell you something right now, because some of you might know somebody. You might have someone in your life that you have been praying for for a long time, and you feel hopeless. They have walked away from Jesus. They may have even grown up in the church, and they are, they are in a hopeless situation. You don't think there's any hope that they could ever experience God's mercy and his grace. I'm telling you there's hope. I'm telling you, don't stop praying. I'm telling you, when they do experience the love of Jesus Christ, their life will be radically transformed and radically changed, and that's the power of the gospel. That's the miracle that God offers us through salvation. That's something to get excited about. I'm not saying you're perfect, but you're new, and you're in the process of being perfected. That's what it means to be born again to a living hope. Remember, before Jesus died on the cross, what was Peter doing? <laughs> denying Jesus. Denying him right before the entire crucifixion. He was, I don't know who that is. He even went so far he cussed out a little girl. He was a coward. And then when you open up to the book of Acts, Peter's, all of a sudden, he is courageous. He's bold. He's walking around Jerusalem preaching about Jesus in front of a lot more people. And at this point, even even at the point of his own persecution and his possible death. Jesus, he didn't care. Peter didn't care. It's changed. His desires changed. I've heard it said before that you need food, water, air, and shelter to live. I would throw in you need hope. Because people with food, water, air, and shelter, they've taken their own life because they didn't have hope. You need hope. And you need your hope to be in the right person, the right, the right direction, and that's Jesus Christ. Because do you see where Peter puts his hope in? It's in Jesus. All the junk that we go in through life, all the trials, all the temptations, they're going to show you where you put your hope in. They will. Believers, we sometimes we miss that. Our hope's going to be in our current situation. Our hope is that it changes. I want what I'm currently struggling with. I want it to end, and I'm putting my hope that it ends. I'm lonely, I want a spouse. I'm married, now I want kids. I want a job that pays better. I hope that one day I, I want to move into a bigger home, drive a better car. I want hair plugs. Did I say that out loud? <laughs> when, it, when it looks like you won't ever get that, you, get, you have despair. You give up. You become bitter. It's like when I played basketball in high school, I had one bad coach, and I came to the conclusion that all coaches are bad. Or how about you ever seen a girl that gets hurt by a guy, and she'll say, all men, all men. All men are pigs. All of them are. That's not true. Is it, Enos? <laughs> what is it that can turn a coward like Peter into a courageous preacher? It was the resurrection. That's called a living hope. So the new birth is a step towards hope, and our hope is a living hope. But keep reading, verse 4, our hope is not just a living hope, it's a lasting hope. Our new birth is a step towards inheritance. You guys know what inheritance is. It's property or money or title that you, you own upon the death of a previous holder who has made you an heir. And once that person dies, it's passed on to you. And if you were named an heir, then usually this is done by parents or children, you get this inheritance. 
I want to ask you, how many of you financially uh, today, it's not going so good? You've hit some bumps. Don't raise your hand, by the way. <laughs> You've hit some bumps in the road. Some of, you, some of you today, you're putting your money in real estate, and you, you're doing that because it's secure. You're ma- maybe you're putting it in stock market. You're putting it into gold, cryptocurrency. You're, you're investing it into all kinds of different things to you know, turn your dollar into more dollars. There's nothing wrong with that. But here's the problem. doesn't matter where you put your wealth. Eventually, someone or something's going to take it. doesn't matter where you put your wealth. Eventually, someone or something's going to take it. The American government's going to want a piece of that. <laughs> no, nowhere you can put your wealth and have a guaranteed secure future. But what Peter's talking about here is that this inheritance that God has for his children forever is secure because God is the one who guards it. I have no idea if you're going to be rich or poor here on earth. I don't. But I do know this. An eternal inheritance that cannot be taken that God has for his children is forever. Is forever. Look at verse 5 with me. Here he's going to talk about how Christians are kept for glory. Verse 5, it says, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Think about Peter for a minute, the guy writing this. You think about what the resurrection of Jesus meant to him, why he was able to put his hope in the resurrection of Jesus. In Peter's darkest hour, Jesus had died. That was Peter's darkest moment in all of his life. That's when everything fell apart. He had based his entire life on the fact that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, but now Jesus was dead. That Friday and that Saturday was a time of some serious depression for Peter. He's so disappointed. Like I said, he denied even knowing Jesus. But then Sunday, he goes to the tomb, and the tomb is empty. (laughs) And then Jesus appears to him, and his sadness does what? His sadness turns to joy. His despair is turned into triumph, and he realizes that the whole time God had a plan. The entire time, God had a plan. Yeah, Friday and Saturday, they were painful, but there was a Sunday coming that reversed all the pain of Friday and Saturday. Peter sees that right now we're living a kind of Saturday. We're we're exiles, but that time is going to be brief. And the joy of the resurrection Sunday, it's coming. It's coming. This one's for Pastor Aaron. J.R.R. Tolkien described the resurrection as a time when every sad thing becomes untrue. And all you Lord of the Rings fans, you've heard that in the movie. Every sad thing becomes untrue. There is a great Sunday morning in eternity where all sad things come untrue. You are going to be reunited with the, the lost loved ones. You're going to be reunited with your lost child. Disease is taken away. There's no more pain. There's no more crying. God is going to wipe every tear away. Come on. Here's another thing Peter saw in the resurrection too. On that worst day where it looked like God was least in control, hear me, God was most in control. <laughs> The greatest day in human history was the day of the crucifixion. But to them, it looked like it was the worst. It was the worst day to them. It wasn't just that God won in the end. It was that God used the apparent defeats as a part of his plan. That's powerful. You need to see your life through the lens of the cross and the resurrection. That's how you need to view your life. That 
There is an awesome Sunday morning when all the sad things are going to come untrue and you can have an inheritance that death and disease cannot touch. And you can see how even the most painful parts of your life are actually working toward that end. I know that's hard. That's a hard pill to swallow. But I'll say it again. You need to see how even the most painful parts of your life are actually working towards that end. Christians, we're going to look at the last two verses here, verses 6 through 7. Christians are being prepared for this glory. You and I, right now, are being prepared by God for our future glory. That's a powerful statement. Verse 6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now here's something interesting about these two verbs that he uses, rejoice and grieved. Number one, they're both very intense verbs. Rejoice means intense rejoicing. Later, Paul says it's exceeding joy that can barely be expressed. I want to see that kind of joy on Sunday. Man, we sing about our, our Savior. I want to see that kind of joy. I've always been taken back by people who don't like uh, charismatic worshipers. I'm not talking, I, I realize that sometimes we can get so charismatic that we can, you know, distract people, but I'm not, I'm not at all taken back by charismatic worshipers. And I, I can go to a Bengals game and I see people act ridiculous. They get so excited when they see the Bengals score a touchdown. I know it's not often, but <laughs> just teasing. I'm a Bengals fan. Where's Regina? I'm all Bengals. <laughs> Who day? Go Bengals. But I've seen people get so excited over a sports event. I've seen teenage girls cry when Justin Bieber walks, shows up on the TV. I see people respond emotionally all the time, and then yet when we come and we sing about the resurrection of Jesus and the everlasting hope he, he offers, we sit there and we just do this. Man. Rejoice and grieved. Grieved is the Greek word. It means, it's the same word used to describe uh, Jesus as he went to the cross. He was Crushed. Crushed. They're both present tense verbs. Walking, and listen to me, walking with Jesus is often, or, or often you experience at the same time great joy and deep pain. At the same time, you can experience great joy and you can experience deep pain. Some of you don't think that's possible. Some of you can't have the joy in the midst of your difficult circumstances because your joy, listen to me, your joy is in the circumstance. Other Christians, they seem to deal with pain by never really feeling it, never admitting that it's there. You walk around, pretend everything is just fine. You never acknowledge that you're hurt, that you're going through any kind of pain. That was me, 13 years old, until I was like mid-20s. I'm okay. I'm going to figure it out. And yet inside I was hurting. I pretended I was okay. When Jesus faced the cross, he didn't say, well, praise the Lord. No, he wept. He cried out to God. Christians hurt. You need to hear this. Just because you serve Jesus doesn't mean you won't experience hurt and pain in your life. But I want you to understand something today. Your hurt can only go so deep because 
Ultimately, your hope is in a God who brings life back from the dead, who turns tragedy into triumph and takes us through the cost to bring us to the resurrection. J.D. Greer said it like this. He said it's like a thermostat. The cold kicking on the heat, the cold of our trials actually kicks on the heat of our faith. Come on. The cold of our trials actually kicks on the heat of our faith. Real quick, trials can actually be beneficial to you. Look, look at that phrase, if necessary. That indicates that there are actually times in your life that God knows that you need to go through trials. Sometimes trials discipline us when we've disobeyed God's will, but other times trials prepare us for spiritual growth or even to help us prevent us from sinning maybe. We don't always know the need that's being met, but we can trust God to know and do what's best. You can. Trials can be helpful. They can be good for you. I know that's not a popular thing to teach in the church, but I'm going to preach God's word. A.B. Simpson wrote this, you will not have any test of faith that will not fit you to be a blessing. I never had a trial, but when I got out of the deep river, I found some poor pilgrim on the bank that I was able to help by that very experience. Boy, I would never want to go through the death of a loved one ever again. But I sure got close and connected to Jesus. And there have been times where I've drawn on that experience to walk with somebody through a very painful time. Number two, trials, they, they come in variations. Peter used the word various. Some translations say manifold. Did you know that the word actually means many-colored, manifold, various colors? Listen, as many colors are on the Paton chart of colors, which happens to be 1,114, in case you're wondering, as many, many colors as you have on that chart are kinds of suffering kinds of trials that you're going to experience. Have you discovered that trials come in all shapes and sizes, all different kinds of shades? Some are small, some are big, some are short, some are very long. And Peter just sort of sums all of it up by saying this, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a while if need be you have been grieved by various trials. I need you to know this. God has God's grace, or has, he has grace sufficient to meet your need. They may vary, but God matches the trial to your strength and your need. You can trust God. Trials aren't easy. He never suggested that we take a careless attitude towards his trials. It'd be incredibly deceitful if we taught that in church. Trials produce a heaviness. You're gonna go through it when you're facing something. Trials cause us to experience grief and pain. That's what happened to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was grieved. He felt a heaviness. That's what, ex that's what happens when we experience difficulties in our life. But we need to be realistic about what we're going through and not put on that brave face just to appear more spiritual. Trials, and this is where we're all in, trials are controlled by God. They don't last forever, they're for a season. I love how Warren Wiersbe says it. If God puts you in the furnace, his eye is on the clock and his hand is on the thermostat. If we rebel, he may have to reset that clock, but if we submit, he won't allow us to suffer one minute too long. The important thing is that we learn the lesson he's wanting to teach us, and here it is, so that God gets the glory through our life and even our suffering. Come on. They refine us. Verse 7 says it so that it's tested the genuineness of your faith. 
more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. What does praise and glory mean here? What do you think he's referring to? Two things, or things that we give to Jesus. Peter looks forward to that. Peter had once sought the approval of men. In the Gospels, there's a story about the disciples walking along the road and they were having this argument, who could be the greatest? And now Peter's in a different place. He says, your approval is all that matters, Jesus. That's all I want. That's all I desire. That's all I'm seeking. I want your approval. I'm serving an audience of one. It's been a hard lesson for me in my life. Hopefully I'm getting there. (laughs) That's hope in Jesus. When your hope, the approval and the delight of a God you can't see right now, but whose face you know you'll stare into in eternity. God is allowing you to go through all these. I don't have time to go through the analogy. I'm gonna close with this story. There was a young woman who was having a hard time in life. So she goes to her mom and she says, Mom, life is really hard. Life is really difficult. I wanna give up. I wanna quit. I don't wanna fight anymore. I don't wanna struggle anymore. You can imagine a mom, that's a huge red flag for a mom. She took her daughter into the kitchen at her house and she did something very unique. She took three pots. She filled with water, put them on the stove. In pot number one, she put carrots. Pot number two, she put eggs. Pot number three, she put ground coffee. Turned up the heat, 20 minutes, she let the heat there simmer. She let the flames get to the water and boil the water. 20 minutes later, she turned the flame off. It cooled down. She took the pots off the stove and she put the carrots in a bowl she put the eggs on a plate and the coffee in a cup and she said to her daughter touch those carrots what do you notice she said well they're soft and she said and then the mother said crap crap crack open (laughs) crack open the egg she took that shell off and noticed it was hard mom said now that coffee take a sip of that coffee she took a sip of that coffee and she said man that's pretty good that's pretty flavorful. And she said, sweetheart, let me, let me ask you this question. Which are you? Are you the carrot, the egg, or the coffee? The daughter says, mom, I'm not, I don't know what you're talking about. She said, well, the carrots went in hard, strong. They came out weak, wilted, and soft. The egg went in fragile with that liquidy center, but came out stiff and hard. But the coffee, the coffee is the only substance that actually changed the water that it was, was in with a fragrance and a taste that you just admitted to me was pretty good. So which one are you? She said, are you the carrot, the egg, or the coffee? All three of those substances, they experienced the same adversity, the same heat at the same amount of time, but they reacted very different. So how do you react in a trial? Does the trial weaken you? Does it wilt you? Do you get stiff and hard and push people away afterwards? Or will you... By that experience, release a fragrance and add a flavor that is unmistakably the imprint of Jesus Christ in your life. You know what I think? I think it's time to stop telling God how big our problems are. I think it's time to stop telling God how big our problem is. Because God is big. He's bigger than our problem. He's in control of this. Do you hear me? He is in control of your life. He is in control of your trials and what you face. He's in control of every situation. He knows what he's about. He's given you this trial. I know some of you are saying, I hate it. I'm grieved by it. 
But I want you to say, I'm glad. I'm glad because God is refining me. He's correcting me. He's strengthening me. He's equipping me and he's testing my faith so that it's gonna, would be to the honor and the praise and the glory of Jesus. Can you say that today? Amen? How many of you want that? How many of you want that in your life, the power of Jesus working in you?